Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There was some big Bay Area news this week. On Monday, Jack Dorsey announced that he's stepping down as CEO of Twitter. For 15 years, Twitter has been an absolute fountain of both creativity and toxicity. And it now serves as an overlay atop the whole rest of media. It's fair to say that Jack Dorsey and the rest of the founders of social networks were woefully unprepared to become the de facto editors of the global information system. By and large, they were smart, technically gifted dudes who found themselves riding a wave of history into a future that they just barely made out before others. That said, they did leave their mark on the things they built, and Jack Dorsey is no exception. Dorsey has been the one constant for Twitter in one way or another since the beginning. But after new CEO Parag Agrawal settles in, Dorsey will even exit the board. Here to talk with us about the Twitter that Jack built and what could be next for this influential but small company, we're joined by Stephen Levy, editor-at-large with Wired. His most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. Welcome to the show, Stephen. It's great to catch up with you. Same here, Alexis. Um, uh, Excited to be on. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been around the technology industry CEOs, all of kind of the legends of, of Silicon Valley. What was Dorsey like? Like, how was he distinct? I, distinct is a good way to put it. Um, you know, they uh, a lot of the CEOs share some attributes, uh, a technical orientation, um, a desire to build. Um, but uh, Jack was a, a little different, um, has been a little different. You know, he's more thoughtful and introspective than your normal CEO. He is not maniacally driven for growth in the way that some of the others uh, have been. Um, uh, but he does have, you know, shares something and he model himself actually explicitly on one in particular, Steve Jobs, hmm. who uh, had this design element to his personality that Jack very much uh, shares. And that also, you know, even some of the eccentricities that Jack Dorsey is known for, like his interest in, you know, hardcore meditation, you know, seems like there's trying to channel some of that Jobsian uh, interest in, in yeah, that type of so. spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he talks explicitly about it. I went to a, a story um, with him and um, we spent 
it was actually uh, about Square, which was uh, relatively young then, which was the financial company he founded uh, after Twitter. And uh, we spent the first 45 minutes of our time together in a tea house. Um, you know, the, it took Square, uh, you know, like non-swipe paying, right? Which is why we went there. But right. we spent the first 45 minutes talking about the tea. And he was explaining to me the concept of wabi-sabi, this Japanese right. you know, philosophy of, you know, like rough and, you know, refined. And um, the PR person was going insane because we weren't talking about Square at all. You know, we were just going on and on and on about that and switched to talking about denim. But that is pure Jack. Yeah, yeah. So he's been in this pretty unusual position, if you're not Elon Musk, of being CEO of two companies. Um, now he'll be concentrating just on Square. What do you think this means for kind of Twitter as as the thing we know it as, you know, the product we use? Not necessarily the company. We'll get to that. But like just the, the product that we log into. Well, I, I think it could be significant. I mean, you know, in Parag, he's picked someone um, who I think shares his passion for the product. But, you know, Jack invented this. I mean, he literally, you know, got a playground in South Park, came up with this idea while he was working for a podcast company um, uh, run by uh, Evan Williams, who co-founded um, Twitter with him. It started within that podcast company. Um, but, you know, Jack was the one invented it as a way for people to connect with each other, to know what they're doing. And it was a sort of an intimate way of sharing their moments in a day, which expanded to uh, more of a broadcast thing where people can you know, um, share their thoughts with the world uh, for better or for worse. Um, but he always had that passion for the intimacy of the product. And he practiced it uh, in his own Twitter um, activities. So I think it, it's going to, Twitter's going to miss him as the leader who participates, who's very much into what the product is and thinking deeply about it. Um, you know, I'm sure he still will do that, but won't have the authority of the person running the, the company. Um, and significantly, of course, he announced his resignation on Twitter. I mean, how do you think about the actual product that got built? I mean, you know, we talked about sort of its early iteration, which was really like very based around like SMS text messaging and this ability that you could just sort of be like, hey, going to lunch. And the old joke about Twitter used to be, you know, you'd tell you what you were having for breakfast. Right. Uh, right. Uh, so what do you think about how the product has or maybe more significantly has not evolved relative to the other social media companies out there? Yeah, well, like some other uh, products, you know, as the product grew, um, people saw ways to abuse it. Um, you know, Twitter's big problem has been um, harassment and uh, in recent years, misinformation. And there's ways to exploit it uh, in very big ways. They have bot networks um, creating accounts and spreading misinformation. Um, people gang up on each other on, on Twitter. Um, you could target someone. Um, it has a particular problem with women on the platform mm -hmm. who, um, when they post something that you know some people don't like, they get attacked in very vicious ways. Um, and Twitter has been slow to mitigate those problems. Um, for years, Jack uh, has acknowledged the problems 
but not taken the pretty severe steps required to uh, make it better. And I think in the last year, finally, we've seen some product changes that help on that. You know, mm-hmm. you could, for instance, you can now uh, limit who can reply to your tweet from only people who you follow, mm-hmm. right? And that's a big change that uh, has helped. And, you know, there's, there's other things that they, they've done, but still um, it's ripe for abuse and the misinformation problem. There's just in the beginnings of figuring out how to stop that. So do you think that was lack of ability to fight those misinformation problems? Or was it more an actual like ideological stance? I mean, the old line now, now very old line about Twitter was, you know, they had said they were the free speech wing of the free speech party. Um, right. that, we're sort of long past that era of Twitter. But do you think that that sort of DNA continued to uh, to kind of circulate and, and inform what they were doing? I, I think you nailed it. It very much was an ideological philosophical question um, that to take steps to make Twitter friendlier or into the um, phrase they've been using more recently to have more of a healthy conversation, say, um, you know, uh, you can't easily do that without perhaps stifling some voices that just want to strongly express themselves. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is a problem. And, you know, for, uh, Jack in particular, and I think some of the other people at Twitter um, and some of the people who were Twitter's, most passionate users uh, didn't want to give that up, didn't want to give up that free speech, say anything um, attitude that, you know, that spirit where, you know, people believe that, you know, well, the antidote to bad speech is more speech. And I think what we found in the past few years is that that's a great phrase that doesn't work so well when there are no gatekeepers and when the, the president of the United States, um, you know, adds his weight and his influence to probably get bad speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into sort of some more community issues and sort of, you know, the kind of creativity that that has built on Twitter through time, I do want to talk really briefly about sort of the business issues that Twitter has had. I mean, other social media companies and other technology companies started around the same time. You know, there's there's trillion dollar companies that are that are working uh, out there in the world. Twitter has never had that level of business success. Obviously, it's a you know pretty successful business by most standards, but it's it hasn't become uh, a Facebook. And is is that kind of what's actually behind Jack Dorsey leaving is is a desire to improve the business of Twitter? Yeah, well, in in sort of a bank shot kind of way, um, so, you know, Twitter, you know, and you mentioned that Jack has been a constant at Twitter. Actually, that's not the case. Uh, he got bounced from his own company um, a couple of years after it started in 2008 um, by um, Evan Williams and Biz Stone, the other co-founders. And um, he went off and founded uh, Square. And in 2011, when Evan Williams was gone, the CEO at the time, Dick Costello, brought Jack back to be sort of a product guru uh, part-time. And then in, in 2015, six years ago, Jack became the CEO again. But if you look back at to the early uh, papers that, you know, uh, and I think this was, you know, uh, when Williams and Stone were running it, but I think Jack probably would have shared in that, you know, their goal was to be the first social media app 
with a billion users. Mm. They, they wrote that down in some papers that got leaked. And uh, that didn't happen. They mm -hmm. never really got even to a half a billion people. You know, they stole it around 300 million. Maybe they're a little above that, maybe up to 400 million, which is like a lot of people, don't get me wrong, but it is not a dominant social network in the way that we've seen Facebook be and even TikTok has like a billion people now over a relatively short period of time. We can get into why that is, but that limited not only its growth, but its monetization. You know, they've come up with some pretty effective ways to monetize the audience they have. But um, even some people, particularly some shareholders, felt that they could have done better at that. And uh, about, about a year and a half ago, maybe a little more, uh, Jack faced a challenge by these, quote, activist shareholders. There was one company in particular called Elliott Management. They tried to throw him out. They said, hey, we don't need a part-time CEO. You're in charge of two companies and you're doing a lousy job besides. You could do better. Um, and Jack managed to stave that off by making a deal. But it was a deal that some people, including me, I actually wrote about this, said that that's it. The clock is ticking on Jack. They not only you know, made him put money into buying back stocks, and they weren't so catch-rich they could easily do that, but they set these really hard-to-meet internal goals and forced him to set uh, a succession process in motion where he'd figure out who the next CEO was. And um, I think the writing was on the wall after mm -hmm. that. Um, Jack said, I want to make it clear, he said, this decision is mine. That's what he tweeted this week. But Oakham's razor says <laughs> you're like, kind of. Yeah. This other stuff had to do with that. Yeah. We're talking about the future of Twitter after CEO Jack Dorsey's announcement of his resignation this week with Stephen Levy, longtime technology journalist with Wired Magazine, among other things, as well as the uh, has most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. We'd also love to hear from you. Uh, what do you want to see change in Twitter now that there's sort of this new era for the company. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we're at KQED Forum, or you can email questions, comments to forum at kqed.org. Want to add another voice to our conversation, too? Andre Brock, an associate professor at Georgia Tech. He is the author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures, and, of course, at Doc Dre on the Twitter. Welcome, Dr. Brock. Hey, how are y'all doing today? Hey, we're good. We're good. I, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Brock, about, you know, Twitter, the product is one thing, but Twitter, the sort of community space is another. And it certainly seems like when I'm thinking about Twitter's legacy, a lot of it is really the innovation that's emerged from black Twitter. I would have to agree with that. <laughs> Given that I wrote a book about it. Uh, <laughs> what exactly do you see as Twitter's in black Twitter's innovations? Well, it's an interesting thing, right? It's been kind of a fountain of creativity and conversation and conversational tropes and memes and and also networks between different types of, of communities, entertainers, activists, scholars, um, kind of a, a, I don't know, but what would you say? I mean, you're the one who wrote the book on it. <laughs> that would be my take. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, maybe as a compliment to uh, Stephen's uh, discussion of Twitter's origins, I want to just add that 
Uh, a fair amount of Twitter's DNA comes from an app that was actually developed in 2004 called TextMob. And TextMob was an open source software app that was designed for folk who were protesting the 2004 Democratic and Republican National Conventions. And so what it was designed to do was to be a decentralized network to allow activists to communicate without necessarily getting the same type of surveillance from police, which sounds kind of familiar, right? And some of these uh, engineers for TextMob went on to work for Twitter. In fact, one of them uh, presented TextMob to the, the, uh, the, um, I've lost my word, brainstorming session, right? That ended up producing the brainstorming session at Odeo that ended up producing what we now know as Twitter. So Twitter always has had an activist DNA to that, I would add. And uh, so that's been really crucial for Black Twitter, especially in light of the protests at Ferguson, the protests around George Floyd, right? But, uh, and so that's been really important. I would also add that activists don't do what they do for money. Right. They do what they do because they have a passion and that passion is for equality and justice, but also in order to just survive in the world. And those things have also been highlighted by Black Twitter's uh, similar enactments and performances of Blackness on this space, uh, leavened, of course, with a fair amount of cultural critique and dark humor that often leads to trending topics and hashtags that go viral. Yeah. I mean, do you think that what, what do you think the relationship is between sort of Twitter, the product and sort of like black Twitter as sort of emergent community phenomena? Um, so I argue frequently that black uh, black discourse. Sorry, let me start over. I argue frequently that um, uh, the black community really ha has this discourse pattern that helps to define its identity and we call it signifying. Right. And signifying really is uh, wit and wisdom playing on words. Uh, from an from a speaker to an audience and 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 back and forth between the two of them ping ponging in a way that uh, uh, ends up modifying the original meaning of the phrase in ways that are humorous but also sometimes critical right and Twitter as an app as a platform is built to uh, not only just support, but expand that type of discourse. So if you think about Twitter's mechanisms of follower, followee, and the timeline, right? Those are spaces where people can speak directly to topics, speak directly to other people, and have those things seen by other people. And that what simply wasn't possible on spaces like Facebook, on um, MySpace, on Black Planet, which is one of the earliest uh, Black social mm -hmm. networks, or on blogs, right? And so Twitter has a unique uh, set of uh, mechanics and possibilities for the black community to flourish. We're talking about the future of Twitter after CEO Jack Dorsey's uh, announcement of his resignation this week. We're joined by Stephen Levy, editor-at-large at Wired. His most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. We're also joined by Andre Brock, an associate professor at Georgia Tech, author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures. He's at Doc Dre on Twitter. We want to hear from you about what types of product changes you'd like to see in this new era of Twitter. What would you like to see? How, how should Twitter be different now that Jack Dorsey is, is stepping away again? Uh, give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch, of course, on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your thoughts to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of Twitter with Jack Dorsey leaving the company. We're joined by the editor-at-large at Wired, Stephen Levy, as well as Andre Brock, associate professor at Georgia Tech. Uh, Stephen, uh, I'm going to come to you on this one too, Andre, but uh, Stephen, let's start with you. Twitter's really a place that you know people both love to hate and hate to love. Um, it, it really inspires this incredible loyalty from its heavy users. But oftentimes people have really complex and conflicted relationships about, you know, their, their, about Twitter. They have, they, the feelings are hard even as um, they come back and back to the app. Why, why do you think that is, Stephen? Uh, you know, Twitter is very much a, a, a people's product. You know, Dr. Brock is absolutely correct in saying how communities, none less than the, the Black community, which really has done amazing innovations on Twitter, but, but the, the users themselves had a huge hand in deciding what the product would be. You know, a lot of the things that are very basic to Twitter were invented by the users, things mm-hmm. like the retweet um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and many other features, you know, were invented by users. And it, um, whereas a different kind of company would have said, wait a minute, we can't have this revolt. This has to be a top down thing. Um, the leaders of Twitter said, hey, that, that, that's cool. We're, we're going to embrace this. This is their product. Um, so people's feelings run deep. And, you know, Twitter can be a nasty place. You know, you could be saying something and mildly sarcastic and all of a sudden find yourself turned on by a mob. Um, and yeah, I mean, people very famously have lost their jobs, their careers, their social standing by, by tweets. You know, if you are up for a job now, you better look at your tweet history uh, because this could mean you don't assume the job. There's been a lot of famous cases where that's happened. So um, it is a... a a place where emotions run high and the stakes are higher than you would think from a place that encourages you just to type in uh, you know, 260. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking at that moment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is, this is amazing. I could just type in something in a couple minutes that just pops into my head, but it could have some serious consequences. Dr. Brock, what do you think? So I had a thread a few days ago uh, where I called Twitter a wailing wall. Uh, and part of that is based on the article I wrote a while a while back uh, where I said Twitter is a space for ritual catharsis, right? The ritual being the 140 characters then plus addressing, so the at plus hashtags if you need be. But the catharsis was a really important to important part to me. The short form of the tweet uh, encourages messages that have a powerful impact. And that powerful impact is usually tied to some sort of visceral response, right? And so I agree with Stephen. A lot of times these visceral responses, particularly in the last few years, thanks to the pandemic and some other economic conditions uh, and the xenophobia of the past president, right? Uh, these, these cathartic responses are often very much uh, powerfully hateful, right? Where it leads to certain pylons on certain groups about certain things. Uh, add to that the fact that 
in many ways, America still, the world still has problems with misogyny, um, with xenophobia, with racism. And so Twitter in some ways seems like a perfect space where just unchecked responses in those veins get published to the algorithm. But on the other hand, I talk about black joy a lot. And when I talk about black joy, I talk about the ways in which we use uh, Twitter in particular as a space to care and repair, uh, care for others and repair our own uh, encounters with modernism, I'm sorry, modernity and capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And so I also see Black Twitter does a lot of that, but other communities as well. So you can talk about the rise of GoFundMes, right? On, on Twitter as a way for people to gain support. And Twitter is basically one of the better spaces to publish those requests for financial mm-hmm. support. Uh, similarly, uh, women have a hard time on Twitter as they do on pretty much every social media platform because of behaviors of men, right? But also I've seen on Twitter where women form collectives to join together, uh, both to devise technical solutions. uh, So things similar to block party, which enables block lists for people who not only said something bad, but all their friends, you can block them too. anybody who's liked anything they like, right? But also more uh, direct discursive solutions. So uh, I'm thinking Feminista Jones with our UOK sis or Mickey Kendall with Solidarity, uh, I'm sorry, I think it is uh, Solidarity for White Women, I think was her uh, kind of controversial hashtag from uh, six or seven years ago. So it can be a space for both. The other thing I will say too, I find that Twitter is subject subjected to statements of belief about what it can be for. And so because it's not seen as a productive and efficient space, like say LinkedIn, right? Mm-hmm. It, it immediately gets uh dinged more heavily than other spaces because it does allow people to be social on there, social without institutional or formal constraints, right? And that's part of what I call techno-cultural belief, right? The fact that we believe that you can act a certain way on here and that thing is amplified. In Twitter's case, it's also a matter of how well you curate your your follower list, right? Mm -hmm. How well you maintain lists and how you handle your activity on the the web. So uh, recently Vice published uh, an article uh, saying Twitter's just being Twitter. They were marking on Parag Agarwal's uh, tweet from a decade ago where he said, well, if people think Muslims are automatically racist, I, I mean, automatically extremist, I'm going to act like white people are automatically racist. And the conservative Twitter sphere just blew up on that. They were just like, look at this. These liberals are going off. My timeline, my black Twitter timeline was like, look at this receipt. We love to see it, right? And so it's largely, it's largely a matter of who you curate your presence around. I'm not saying a filter bubble because I don't necessarily think Twitter is amenable to that as, as much as other spaces, but it's definitely a matter of trying to build your space so that it uh, has a healthy view of both uh, interaction, conflict, and sociality. But Dr. Brex, so you, I mean, you have probably as sophisticated a view as you could have about the sort of techno-cultural structures that are Twitter. But what about yeah. your own relationship to the thing? Do you ever just be like, I need to delete this app off my phone. I can't handle what's happening on here. Or do you feel like you are a relatively high levels of equanimity about your relationship to this thing? So according to my iPhone, I spend eight hours a day on my phone and I spend four of those hours on Twitter, right? So I'm definitely not the one to talk about disengaging from it. But I will say that a lot of my addiction comes from recently the enforced isolation of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? I am a coffee shop writer, so I'm used to being social when I'm doing the work that I need to do. But even before that, I turned to Twitter because I was often the only Black person in a department when I was out in the Midwest 
or in a town that was largely white, right? And so Twitter was a space where I could recover some of my sense of self, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, it, it can be a positive space. There's a lot of bull that goes on there, right? There's a lot of ugliness that happens, but that's also happening in everyday life. So I think it's, um, it's nuanced, I think, as you said mm-hmm. it, right? To mm-hmm. say that this is a space that where this happens, I just really avoid say, being determinist and saying it's because of Twitter that mm-hmm. these things happen. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in a listener, Noah from Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. My question is, uh, I remember seeing a study some number of months ago, I've been searching and can't find it, unfortunately, uh, that found that COVID-19 disinformation actually didn't travel as far on Twitter compared to other social media platforms. And as a user of several of these, I was just kind of curious as to if any of the experts had some ideas as to why that might be the case, if there's a way that Twitter engages specifically or encourages people to talk um, or, you know, check ideas they don't agree with. Um, Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Stephen Levy, what do you think? Yeah, I think the way the follower structure works Mm -hmm. um, on Twitter is different than something like Facebook. They don't have groups on on twitter in the the, the the same way i feel that um it it's tougher to recruit people uh on twitter to you know some kind of uh denial group or you know uh mm-hmm. than it is on uh, a, a social product like facebook yeah dr brock i heard you uh i heard you nodding through the phone is that you, you agree with that <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, unlike Facebook, which again, that, as Stephen pointed out, has groups which amplify uh, negative emotions, or the the fo- friending mechanism on Facebook, which really doesn't encourage weak tie relationships. Like you get, you might get friends of friends, but not many more than that. Twitter is more open in its discourse, so you'll have people when you when they see a tweet that's anti-vax, you'll see people who it managed to come up through either the algorithm or through a. a uh, the fire hose, as I call it, where Twitter will notify you that, hey, this thing is trending. And they will then jump in and say, uh, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Or why would you say that? And those things get equal promotion with the anti-vax statements to their followers. So there's no amplification of that message. There is an amplification of those messages, but there's also a corresponding uh, increased amplification of people who are saying, that's just silly. That's just corrective. That, that's yeah. a benefit, I think, of Twitter. Yeah. We're talking about the future of Twitter after CEO Jack Dorsey announced his resignation this week with Stephen Levy, editor-at-large at Wired. His most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. We're also joined by Andre Brock, an associate professor at Georgia Tech, author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures, and at Dre on Twitter. Do want to hear from you. For the first time, Twitter will be free of its the influence of its founders, and we would love to know what you would like to see from the new Twitter Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. This is an interesting uh, listener comment. Mike writes, maybe it's okay for, quote-unquote, only 300 million people to be on Twitter. Does it have to grow to be more successful? Hey, uh, Dr. Brock, we'll start with you. I was actually thinking that as well, like uh, VCs and Wall Street have really uh, pushed not just Silicon Valley, but the entire American economy to this idea that only un- 
uh, unalloyed growth is a, is the best metric for a company's health. And I think that Twitter is kind of settling in at 300 million. I think it's been around that for a, a number of years now actually is better for Twitter than continually to continually trying to drive quote unquote innovations, right. To gather more uh, followers or gather more users, right. As such, they're, they're not pushed to take on extractive policies or uh, things uh or ad, ad agreements that other uh, networks have taken on. So I saw a, a comment in an article that said, Twitter only really chased monetization of ads a few years back, as opposed to 10 years or so, which it could have done, mm-hmm. right? And as such, it's, uh, uh, I'm not gonna say less tainted because I'm sick of ads in my feed, just like everybody else, <laughs> right? But it, it's just not the same environment as if you say, go to Instagram, which would become a shopping mall. Yeah. Totally. Stephen Levy, you know, what can we expect from Parag Agrawal in terms of like, is he going to try and grow just the the user base? Is he going to take the company in a totally different direction? Is Vine going to come back? Like what's what's going to happen here? Well, I think uh, the fact the fact is that those pressures that were on Jack are still going to be on him. Mm -hmm. Um, There are these internal goals. I think they want him to double the usership. Right. Which is going to be a lift. uh, so he has to watch out for that. Um, he has to ha- solve or at least make progress on some of the issues of moderate content moderation um, that we've been talking about. Uh, and so he has to do that. But he also has some of Jack's passions. You know, uh, Jack's turned into quite a crypto fan in, in, in recent years. And, you know, uh, Parag, I think, shares in that. He was involved in some of these initiatives. So we're going to see some of that. And you know, in terms of monetization, the rising business model of Twitter um, is subscriptions. They have a product now that was released a few months ago where you can get kind of a premium Twitter. You could actually do a little editing. You know, if you tweet, you get a little um, bonus time. You can fix the, the, the tweet before it goes out to the world. Um, and it's got some other features that you pay a few dollars a month for. And I think we're going to see more of that. The, the passionate users of Twitter, maybe the corporate users, would have to pay something. You know, uh, Dutch Brock, one of the things that I've always wanted to see more uh, from uh, out of Twitter on is, you know, there, there's kind of like two pieces, right? There's the network that you develop, right? Your followers and, mm-hmm. and the, the people that you follow. And then there's the stuff you actually do with them, like the actual sort of product, like you tweet at them and you do different stuff. I've always wanted to see them try and use that network to allow, like, open up new things. And it felt like Twitter Spaces is kind of like the first attempt to to really to do that, to really be like, here, you've got this network of people. Now do something else with them aside from send, you know, short messages. I definitely understand that impulse to see them do more with what they have, but Twitter spaces is quickly becoming an instructional uh, moment in how not to do things. So (laughs) a lot of commentary I've seen recently is that with the opening up of spaces to everybody, you're starting to see spaces which are actively promoting Mm anti-Semitism, QAnon, uh, racism, misogyny, and the like. And uh, somebody pointed out that in order to report those spaces, you have to join those spaces and expose yourself to that type of foolishness, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I think uh, Agrawal's experience with algorithmic moderation, I understand that he was part of the teams that have been working on it for the last few years, is definitely going to have to be directed towards this new expression of Twitter, right? I want to give a shout out to Ruman Choudhury, right, who's been doing a lot of really great work around transparency, polarization, and algorithmic moderation on Twitter as well. And I, I would like to see Twitter do more actually in that direction to try to fix the problems that they already have, rather than creating 
uh, new alternatives or opportunities for people to abuse the system, yeah. right? Uh, one of the things I think that has also come up with return with respect to the automated moderation system is that the right wingers and alt right people have become really good at reporting mm -hmm. uh, uh, content by women and people of color. So a recent example was uh, uh, a young woman said a uh, uh, racist uh, called her out her name, uh, threatened her, and when she told him to uh, go jump in a lake of fire. He reported that she got blocked. He did not. Mm -hmm. Right. Her account was permanently suspended. Right. And so there's some ways in which this algorithmic moderation needs to be augmented by human moderation. But there are also some things I think that could be done algorithmically to help fix. Yeah. Stephen Levy, what do you think the best case scenario for Twitter over the next you know, few years is like what, what do you think might what are the possibilities here? What's the top end possibility? I, I think that they there is room for you know some user growth. I think that in, in an optimistic world, um, they would be able to be successful in selling subscriptions for uh, advanced uses. Um, uh, I really, to be honest, I'm a little mystified at how crypto is going to actually bolster the key product of, of Twitter. Um, but there's also more than they can do in moderation. One change I would love to see is I would like users to have the power to limit replies to accounts that have only been up for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people wouldn't be able to do bots on the spot or, you know, anonymous people or maybe uh, accounts that have a certain amount of, of followers. Um, one, one other thing I, I do want to say, in addition to getting uh, Dr. Brock's book, um, uh, my publication, Wired, did a really amazing cover story by Jason mm -hmm. Farnham on Black Twitter a mm -hmm. few months ago, um, which uh, we were all proud of. Yeah. Well, and just as a shout out to an old school thing we used to do, just right here at the end, can you each give us one Twitter account that you, you actually love to follow? We'll start with you, Dr. Brock. Um, although I should probably mention everything Black Twitter, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite accounts is actually Johnny Sun. Uh, because he has this unrelenting uh, positivity to his account, right? And he couches it in ways that people find immediately re um, relatable. So that that's my version of joy for the day. Cool. And how about you, Stephen? Well, you know, this will like 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 show what I do in my spare time. But this is a uh, uh, there's uh, I don't mind even sure the exact name, but I think it's called like internal tech memos or something. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> it basically exposes. Um, emails and other documents that have come out in various court cases from the big tech companies. Ooh, and they're good. always like embarrassing and often hilarious. Yeah. Uh, last listener comment. Chuck writes, when Jack Dorsey first launched Twitter, I was working in a San Francisco news bureau. He came in for an interview to explain how it worked. Users would have a nickname or handle and would transmit short, pithy comments to anyone who tuned in. Just like CB Radio, I thought. It'll be a fad for a year or so, and then everyone will move on. Catch you on the flip-flop, good buddy. <laughs> We've been talking about the future of Twitter after CEO Jack Dorsey announced his resignation with... Dr. Andre Brock, an associate professor at Georgia Tech, author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures, and Stephen Levy, editor-at-large with Wired. His most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alexis, and pleasure to meet you, Stephen. Same here. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.